Richmond, Virginia is no longer the capital of the Confederacy. It is filled with diversity and love for all, and we need to demonstrate that. The mayor of Richmond, Levar Stoney, said in early July 2020. Mayor Stoney then went on and called Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy, a racist and a traitor who fled our city as soon as his troops carried out orders to burn it to the ground. One week later, Richmond's protesters ripped Jefferson Davis from his, as we say on this pod, from his perch on Monument Avenue. Jefferson Davis's Richmond sculpture was unveiled on June 3rd, 1907. The statue shows Davis as a statesman, giving a speech in the U.S. Senate. For more than 100 years, it stood in front of a 65-foot-tall column. Behind Davis, on the top of this 65-foot column, sat an allegorical figure, Vindicatrix, based on the word vindicate, the dark angel of the lost cause. Hang Jeff Davies from a sour apple tree or make him a monument. Dealing with sometimes the uncomfortable and always the historical. My name is Marcus and this is Ozymandias. this thing? Who is the guy? What was happening when it was put up? And how did it come down? Let's start. Edward Virginius Valentine, guess where he's from, unveiled on June 3rd, 1907, an east-facing monument supported and flanked from the rear by a 65-foot-tall Doric column topped with a bronze figure called Vindicatrix. There were 13 other columns between the main facade and the bronze statue itself of Jefferson Davis. There were 13 other columns with bronze seals representing the seceding states and the states that sent troops to the Confederacy, the Confederacy that Jefferson Davis was the president of, the leader of. Jefferson Davis probably... Third, realistically, to Abraham Lincoln, and then to Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, and then, what, Grant in fourth place? But as far as the most notable figures from this time in American history, the Civil War, Jefferson Davis, he's the president. This is his statue. Vindicatrix is in bronze as well as Jefferson Davis. And again, Virginia's Valentine, Edward Virginia's Valentine, He's a Southerner uh, from the great state of Virginia. And uh, his partner, William C. Nolan, he, he actually came up with the arrangement, this design of this idea of the states themselves behind supporting their president, their leader, Jefferson Davis, with a central column 65 feet tall overlooking that arrangement with a allegorical figure, a representative named Vindicatrix, I mean, we're talking about the word vindicate, literally looking over the shoulder of these figures from our history. 
as a monument is what we've talked about on this podcast many times, something that you want your current state to be thought of and reflected on in the future. In 1907, what sort of vindication are we looking for uh, as far as our relationship to the Civil War? Jefferson Davis, in his farewell address to the U.S. Senate, July 21st, 1861, this is his farewell address prior to going to take over you know, the Confederacy. This is what he says, and this is actually engraved on the frieze above on this monument on the Doric column. Uh, it says this, This is done not in hostility to others, not to injure any section of the country, not even for our own pecuniary benefit, but from the high and solemn motive of defending and protecting the rights we inherited, in which it is our sacred duty to transmit unshorn to our children. The rights of being a slave owner is what is he has engraved on this monument in Richmond, Virginia, that stood for over 100 years. Um, the plaque on the left-hand side of this monument, it reads, To the Army of the Confederate States, to the Army. From Fort Sumter to Appomattox, four years of unflinching struggle against overwhelming odds, glory around their dear land, wrapping wrapped around themselves the purple mantle of death, dying they did not at all, but from the grave in its shadow, valor invincible lifts them, <laughs> glorified ever on high. That's what they wrote to the army. It's on the plaque here at the at the monument. Uh, the plaque on the right hand end of the monument it reads. To the Navy of the Confederate States, giving new examples of heroism, teaching new methods of warfare, it carried the flag of the South to the most distant seas. If to die nobly be ever the proudest glory of virtue, this of all men has fortune greatly granted to them, yearning with deep desire to cloth their country with freedom now at the least rest of an ageless fame. I mean, this is spooky stuff. These Confederate opiners in 1907, are writing with this romanticism, with this nostalgia. We are hearkening back to a time when the Navy was setting examples of heroism. From Sumter to Appomattox, the Army is not dying at all, but from their grave being remembered as valor, invincible, glorified ever on high. These guys are spooky. And... At best, they're, they're delusional. Uh, at, at, at worst, they are intentionally shaping the way that we, in our present, are able to, through history, understand the types of people that, let's say, Jefferson Davis was. Who is Jefferson Davis? Uh, Jeff Davis, the quick skinny, I mean... He's a military guy. He's a military guy from the beginning who dabbles his toe into politics, who, again, kind of is propped up from level to level on his, you know, his LinkedIn would be politics and business. But with each moment of taking a step up, there'd be a little moment in between of military involvement and military leadership. He's a career military climber who it's tough to say, was he using the civilian life to prop up a military career or was he using his military career to prop up his fame and status and to become a politician? It's a little bit of a yin or yang story where, you know, if, if you were to evaluate this man as a president today or a presidential candidate today, 
I don't I can't even remember the last true military guy who would have been a presidential nominee or, or that public in in our American life. Maybe Wesley Clark, obviously from a different end and a different spectrum. But this is a military guy. Even before he was a president of the Confederacy, he was a U.S. senator. He was a secretary of war, actually, in the cabinet under Franklin Pierce. He was indicted for treason, though never tried. And he remains a symbol of Southern pride today. Absolutely. Military man, military family, one of 10 children born into a military family. Uh, He was actually born just a few miles away. And within eight months of his rival to come, President Abraham Lincoln. So these guys are both within 100 miles their entire lives growing up, which is interesting to think about. Davis's father and his uncles were soldiers in the American Revolutionary War, and three of his brothers fought in the War of 1812. In 1824, at the young age, coming out of primary school, President James Monroe appoints Jefferson Davis to his cadetship at, the, at, the, uh, at West Point, United States Military Academy at West Point. So we've got political figures in big and serious ways throughout this young man's career already helping him rise through the ranks. His first kind of major promotion after being at West Point, he starts to get into from kind of the years early 1830s through 1835 as he's earning his stripes, so to speak. He earns him on the stripes in service on the battlefield against Indian tribes. He's known for fighting in his battles against the Comanche, for his battles and for his fights against the Pawnee. He comes home from this experience out, out west and starts delivering these extremely powerful speeches. He starts to use that military prop, that step that he took on the western fronts of you know, the wars of expansion, um, with the Comanche and the Pawnee, he comes home and he starts, he, all of a sudden he has a pulpit, he has a place, a forum, he has a audience who is listening to what he is saying. And he's talking about states' rights from the very beginning. If there's, if there's one thing you have to look at in, in fairness on Jefferson Davis, he was consistent from the first, from his first statement of his first political speech uh, to, to the very end of his times where he's imprisoned by his, his Union countrymen um, as a prisoner at the end of the Civil War, from the very beginning, it's about states' rights. He comes out and supports actually Texas uh, becoming a individual, an individual country, the, the independence of Texas. He comes out and um, throughout his, his career as an early congressman even, he, he's coming out from one state to the next, from this state to the next, and fighting for states' rights. So here we are. Now we're coming forward. We're in the 1840s now. And the Mexican-American War kicks off, and Jefferson Davis, who's now in Congress in Washington, D.C., resigns from Congress to go be a, a, a colonel in the Mexican-American War. He held the rank of colonel under uh, who, who then becomes President Taylor, He actually marries President Taylor's daughter. She dies of malaria within three months of of their wedding. But he's ingrained in the political kind of Washington elite, this relationship of the military to politics at this time. If you rise through the military ranks, you're going to get noticed because there is a lot of opportunity for the military to be involved. We're fighting 
we're fighting battles all over the place to conquer effectively uh, North America. Throughout this kind of experience working closely with then-to-be General Taylor, President Taylor, uh, Jefferson Davis is, is key at the Battle of Monterey. He led his men to, to uh, an attack at Fort Tenera. He gets eventually like wounded at the Battle of Buena Vista. Uh, Mexican swords and soldiers, he's actually stabbed and, and it has a, a serious incident that because he survives and lives and is known for his victory at the Battle of Buena Vista, he starts to get national acclaim as this politician who set down you know, the, the, the quill and picked up the sword. And he succeeds in doing that. Davis's uh, uh, father-in-law, who then goes on to become President Taylor, he says about you know, his daughter, he says, My daughter, sir, she was a better judge of a man than I was. Originally, he thought that Jefferson Davis was a ladder climber and not that interesting, that he didn't want his daughter around him. And he kind of changes his tune after this Battle of Monterey and the Mexican-American War, earning his stripes and spades. June 1846, Jefferson Davis kind of made his first step in the American ethos by resigning from Congress and succeeding in the Mexican-American War. Jefferson Davis was seen as the champion of a slave society and embodied the values of the planter, plantation class. He was elected provisional Confederate president on January 23rd, 1861, easily. He was the South's first round draft pick for succession. Most historians, and we're not going to go into full Civil War deep dive today. I could talk about the Civil War for hours, and maybe we'll do that uh, in a later version of this podcast. But most historians are sharply critical of Jeff Davis for flawed military strategy. He he had his hand in too many cookie jars too often, too frequently. He wasn't a delegator. He wasn't a leader. He was barely a doer. He had a selection of his friends that he put into military command. He neglected home front, like economic issues, production, supply chain, and also like food and provision issues. He didn't support and fundraise into the Navy. There were a lot of issues He was dealing with a half deck of cards realistically versus the resources of the North. But, hey, you're succeeding. You kicked off the Civil War. You literally signed up for it. Until late in the war, he'd resisted efforts to appoint a general-in-chief, essentially handling all of the chief of general duties himself. He couldn't delegate. Davis was loathed by much of his own military, his own Congress, and his own public in the end. Even before the Confederacy died on his watch, uh, General Beauregard wrote that in a letter. If he were to die today, the general said, the whole country would rejoice at it. When you're coming across one of those career jump back and forth types of folks and their LinkedIn looks like maybe it's too good to be true, remember old Jefferson Davis. It most likely is. Uh, First round draft pick. This is in the Darko Milicic Uh, realm of just not gonna cut it you guys and the south is gonna take that l for the rest of time in history and thank goodness that they did why didn't the union hang jefferson davis 
or, you know, kind of take the ultimate step of ending his life as, as the definitive example of treason. Why did Jefferson Davis, why was he allowed to live out his days post the Civil War? Jefferson Davis was released 153 years ago this month on a $100,000 bail. This is after the Civil War. He's imprisoned, a military prisoner. That's what happens when you lose. But over $1 million adjusted for inflation in today's money was raised by 20 rich men from across the United States. Uh, Many of these were extreme advocates from the union and financial backers of the union. Um, One was Jarrett Smith. He was a member of the Secret Six who actually helped finance John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. What is the guy who raised the money for John Brown to lead the raid on Harper's Ferry? What is the guy fundraising on that side doing, getting Jefferson Davis uh, his, his bail? after the Civil War, after 600,000 deaths. Another was Cornelius Vanderbilt, who had donated the biggest steamship in the fleet to the U.S. Navy, to the Union. Horace Greeley, uh, the publisher of the New York Tribune, he also raised money to get Jefferson Davis out out, out of, uh, of jail. What's going on with all of the financial backers of the Union being so involved in freeing Jefferson Davis? It's one of those things where you have to wonder to yourself, you have to wonder to yourself, were they intentionally making it so that Jefferson Davis wasn't the martyr, so that there would be a monument made with rose-colored glasses and nostalgia and uh, all of the, the, all of the things that we're now doing in Richmond in 2020 today with the removal of this monument and hopefully the removal of Vindicatorix on top of the 65 foot as well. But what, what were they doing by not letting him become the martyr, by not letting him be executed by the union? They were probably doing their best at their time to prevent something like what would go on to happen in 1907 to effectively whitewash the reality of the issue of the Civil War. Is it an issue of states' rights? Is it an issue of local governance? Or is this truly and absolutely as Jefferson Davis says himself in his own words, uh, just to transmit unshorn to our children the rights that we inherited. You have to give it to the folks who are ponying up the, the million dollars to get Jefferson Davis released from what surely would have been a hanging under the Andrew Johnson presidency, you know, he's a Southerner. He took no chances. On Christmas Day, 1868, he pardons all former Confederates from the possible crime of treason, thwarting any sort of vengeance and emboldening this lost cause Southerner claim. We'll be talking about that for the rest of time. What would have happened had that pardon not have happened? What would have happened had Jefferson Davis not been, you know, the money's not been raised for his bail? The government in 1869 says to, you know, Jefferson Davis, we're not going to pursue a case against you, the leader of the Confederacy. He, Jefferson Davis goes on, he engages in various business ventures, he wrote books, and 
he went on to die in 1889. 1907, when this thing goes up, you just have to believe that these guys who raised that a million dollars to, despite their rival being their prisoner, release him because of their understanding, perhaps, of the role of history in how we would be perceiving what was and what wasn't the Civil War. 1907, somehow by that time, just a short short, you know, hop and a jump later, one half a generation later, you know, the same, same people in, in, in some, in some instances are still going to be calling the shots, even, even within this time jump forward. 1907 is when this statue goes up. It's 1907. You know, it sounds like, yeah, we're in the 20th century, but Oklahoma just becomes a state in 1907. They just become a state, the 46th state. Uh, 8% of the U.S. households in 1907 have electricity. You know, while this is somewhat early and, you know, we all probably have great grandparents who are around, you know, in 1907, no problem, just two generations from where we are today. You know, this is a time of, yeah, we're, we're transitioning into the 20th century. Japan, they're about to shock the world as they go to war with Russia and the Russia, Russo-Japanese War and kind of signal the haves and the haves not of, military and navy and technology it doesn't matter how old or how big your state is if you haven't been investing in your navy and your new toys you're gonna get rolled that's what we learned in 1907 so the change to the 20th century is really just happening but but america is young we we don't even have our full states rounded out but we're starting to flex ourselves teddy roosevelt we're we're strong arming folks in Panama, the Panamanians, and we're starting the creation of the Panama Canal. We elect a head engineer to go down there and work on that project for us to effectively open up and unlock all this Western expansion and to bring commerce and trade and all the goodies that we're finding out in California. Well, we got to bring that back and we got to connect that to Europe. So we're, we're working on the Panama Canal. We're working on our fleets as well. There's a new passenger liner, 1907. Talk about the turn to the 20th century. 1907, here's a name you may remember. The new passenger liner, the RMS Lusitania, makes its maiden voyage from Liverpool, England to New York City. We also have, of course, if you've ever seen or studied up on this, really interesting time of American kind of not just coming of our own, but we're starting to flex. We're starting to show the world that, that we've got boats too. The Great White Fleet departs Hampton Roads, Virginia on a 14-month circumnavigation of the globe. So yes, we are flexing. The world is changing. We don't have all of our states yet. We have less than 10% electricity. But in the same year of 1907 that we're bringing at the capital of the Confederacy in Richmond, Virginia... At the same time that, that that's happening, either a poorly named or a terrible pun or worse, a dog whistle of a global show of power from the White House, we are showing the world that we, quote, are branding the great white fleet to come knock on their door. Friends, we don't know that that's what the white fleet is all about. It seems like a little bit of a dog whistle, though. What we do know is that along with Jefferson Davis, 11 of his friends came down with him in Richmond. Mayor Stoney got together with 
school boards and teachers and superintendents. And he used the monument removal address with the press in the room to announce that the city was planning to open Cardinal Elementary School. This is the sort of monument moving forward that we want to erect for our children in the city of Richmond, said Mayor Stoney. This is a testament to what we can do when we all work together. Although you all know that we are removing monuments that I think exemplify hate, division, and oppression, we're going to build these monuments of opportunity right here. The other statues that came down, they weren't as prominent. They didn't have the great facade and the backing of the columns and the 65-foot-tall representation of, of... a greater time through the rose-colored glasses that sounded good to you know the grandpas in 1907 that were looking back on their youth. What we do know is that Robert E. Lee still stands in Richmond today. He stands on state property where the mayor did not have the authority to remove him. But just because he's on that property today There's still these words that appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Thanks, everybody. See you next time.